You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. ago I was watching TV on a Friday night. I really wasn't watching, I was kind of reading. And uh, But out of the corner of my eye I saw the tube sitting over there. It, it always stays on, you know, it's kind of like a friend, you know, a third party in the house there. And I didn't even know what was on television. In fact, um, I don't even know what caught my attention. Uh, but it's a show that I'd never watched before and frankly I haven't watched since and I really didn't even enjoy it, <laughs> if you want to know the truth. But I learned something and so I'm glad that I you know, stayed with it that night and, and went ahead and watched it. It's a television show, WKRP. It's about a radio station in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, have any of you ever seen that television show? Uh, okay, well, a couple of you have. I'm, most of the kids, well, maybe they probably haven't because it comes on on Friday night. I don't even remember what time it was, but it was, it was kind of interesting what I came across. And the story is that uh, one of the employees at WKRP has a, had a little brother that was about a senior in high school. Um, he was very disinterested in school, and so she asked one of the fellow employees there at WKRP if he would maybe play the counselor. He had kind of been down some of the same roads that this kid had been down, and so she felt like that maybe he would have something to say. So he agreed that he would. And uh, in, they, they met, and the young boy was about 17 years old, was involved in a gang, and, and was just really, you know, down on everything. But in the, in the process of the conversation, the, the man discerned that the reason that the kid was so disinterested in the school and why he wanted to quit was that he felt like he was dumb. It was because of the self-concept that he had. Uh, and he felt like he was an idiot and that he really couldn't learn. And so having discerned that, the employee decided that he would, would perform a test. And so he gave a challenge to the kid and he said, if I can teach you in two minutes the components of the atom, will you stay in school? Now this kid, you know, he's kind of Joe Cool and he's standing around here, and he's pretty convinced, you know, that that's an impossible task in itself, and much less in two minutes. So he said, sure, you know, he wasn't willing to turn down a challenge. He said, sure, you know, I'll take you up on that one. So right there in the basement of WKRP radio station in Cincinnati, the teacher gets his black magic marker out, and he draws a big circle on the wall. And he begins to, to talk about the protons and the neutrons. You guys know what all that is? and the, the nucleus, you know, of the atom and all of that kind of stuff, and he couches it in language that would be very easy for a guy on the street in a street gang to understand. He kind of talked about the protons as one gang and the neutrons are another gang over here, and, and he put it in language that the kid could get into, and, and they, you know, they were going to meet down at the nucleus and have a, have a fight, you know, and that kind of stuff. And the guy was getting into it, and he was really enjoying it, and he said, yeah, yeah, I understand that. So at the end of the two minutes, the teacher performed a test. They began to ask him some questions. And uh, the kid answered all the questions, you know, and he was getting into it and enjoying it, you know, and finally the teacher said, well, see there, uh, you know about the atom now. And for the first time, the kid realized, I've been had. <laughs> you know, this has really happened. And, and out of, you know, out of uh, just sheer uh, fear that he had been, had been beaten in the challenge, he exclaims, oh, well, what good's it going to do? I can't see an atom. 
I can't touch it. I can't hold it. What good's it going to do me to know anything about the atom? To which the uh, teacher or the employee of WKRP replied, Son, what you need is to learn to live beyond your fingertips. Now, in my thinking, if a profound definition of faith has ever been given, that's it. Learning to live beyond your fingertips. Learning to live beyond, beyond sight, beyond touch, beyond feel. Learning to live beyond what is, what is concrete that we have that we can hold on to. Now, the writer to the Hebrew people, whoever he was and whoever they were, but the writer of the letter uh, to the Hebrews knew of the necessity for those people to understand the need for that kind of lifestyle, the need for that kind of understanding about learning to, to live in faith. They needed to hear it, and I think that it's germane to us too because we need to hear it. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. Brother Vaughn, I understand that on Wednesday nights you've been teaching through the book of Hebrews and have recently gone through chapter 11, at least part of it, or maybe in the midst of it right now. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews is a very strategic chapter in the book of Hebrews because it's in this, this letter or this chapter that the writer to the Hebrews begins to nail down something that had been misunderstood for so long. And he begins to emphasize the fact and try to help these people understand that right standing with God has always been on the basis of faith. It never was on the basis of works as the Jewish Pharisees and the Jewish people had for so long understood. And he begins to nail that point down and he pulls some individuals right out of their history to prove his point that they would have used also as illustrations to prove their point. But the writer of the Hebrews uh, illustrates in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that right standing with God has always been on the basis of faith and never has been on the basis of works. I'm going to read just the first four verses of the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, your word that it teaches us. Lord, somehow tonight, I pray that... Uh, You'll speak through the familiarity of uh, the setting, the place where we are, what we are doing here tonight, uh, and maybe even speak through the familiarity that we have with this passage of Scripture. And speak to us, Father, about faith, about what it means, about what it means for us for daily living, and that we could go from here tonight uh, with a renewed understanding of walking with you and of, of living beyond those things that are of sight and of sound and of feel living in the realm of faith that you've called us to. And we pray that in your son's name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> immediately when we think of faith, when you hear that word faith, the question arises with anyone that has ever struggled with the concept of faith, of what faith is, the question arises, 
Well, what is faith? You know, it's such a ethereal type of turn. It's, it's something that's almost out there somewhere for most of us that, that we can't really grasp. And, and we always, for anyone that, that has really struggled with, with trying to walk with God and trying to live the Christian life, they've struggled with that question and, and come to the place where they had to ask that question, what is faith? Well, the writer to the, to the Hebrews begins, first of all, in the first three verses, and he, he teaches that faith is confidence in the person of God. Now, he doesn't come out and say it that way. Those are my words, but I hope that I can explain that and bring it out to where you'll see it from the Scriptures. Faith is confidence in who God is. Faith is confidence in the person of God. Now, Laura and I have been married for about a year and a half. Uh, most of you know that, but there's something that most of you don't know, and that is that we were engaged a very short time after we started dating. Now, some of you parents are beginning to cringe to hear me say that because, you know, you're afraid that your child is going to get engaged, you know, after the first couple of weeks or something. But, you know, I was 25 years old. I was about, it was about time for me to get married anyway. I was old enough to make that kind of decision. Uh, maybe she wasn't. <laughs> she was. I'm thankful. But, you know, we've been married for about a year and a half. We became engaged very soon after we started dating. I came to that decision very quickly, very easily. Uh, she didn't come so easily <laughs> to that place. She had to, to go through a process, kind of. And one of the things that she did, that I found out later that I didn't know at the time, that she did to come to that decision about whether she was going to decide to be my wife or not, was that she made two lists. And I didn't plan this, but I have them up here, so I'll use them. Uh, she made two lists. On one list, she put all of the cons, you know, all of the things, why she should not marry me. I never saw the list, so I don't, I don't know what was on that thing. Maybe it's best. Uh, but on the, and, and then she made another list, and it was the pro side. And on it, she listed all of the reasons why we should get married. Now, I, it's obvious, I suppose, we're married now, so the, the pros outweighed the cons, and we got married. But you know, even though she had done her homework well, she had prayed through that, she had done something that was very practical, seems like to me, especially for a woman. Uh, I don't, that, you know, that's maybe not the right way to say it, but, you know, we normally don't think of women, uh, you know, in a, in a love situation of, you know, thinking that practically. Man, I wasn't thinking practically. I told God, I found the woman I want to marry, Lord. Uh, I hope this is the one you've got for me because I'm going to ask her, you know. But, you know, she was very practical about this process. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact that she had done that, that we had prayed through that, that she had even gone to the point of making those lists and weighed the practicalities of the whole thing, the day that we went to the altar and said, I do, it was still a faith proposition. Very much. It was still a faith proposition. She was placing her trust in me. Her faith had an object, and I happened to be that object. She was placing her trust and her faith in me that I would really prove to be the person that I had told her I was the person that I had shown her that I was. She didn't know that for sure. She just knew what I had told her and how I had acted. And it was still a faith proposition for us because the things that I said to her on that altar that day and promised her that I would do this and I will do that and I will be this and I will be that, when it was all said and done, it was still a faith proposition. She was still placing her trust and her faith in me. And had I proven to be unworthy of that, and if I do prove to be unworthy of that somewhere down the line, then her faith would have been founded in something that was not worthy of faith. 
But the point is that faith has an object. Faith has substance. And the writer to the Hebrews says, in fact, it is the assurance of things hoped for. And another translation of this word conviction is also that it is the, uh, the uh, uh, completeness, the concreteness. It is the object. And it gives the idea that it really is, in fact, something that you can hold on to because faith has an object. And listen to this. If faith does not have an object, it's not faith. It's stupidity. Faith always has an object. Faith, the writer to the Hebrews says, is trust in the person of God. Now, he drives the point home even further in verse 3. Read with me down here in verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, somewhere long way back there when God created the world, you and I were not there. You weren't there. I wasn't there. None of us were there to see God do that. But we believe it by faith, the writer to the Hebrews says. We understand it by faith because our faith has an object, and that object is the person of God. And he says, because God has, has proven to us who he is, like I was saying with the children this morning, because God has shown himself to be who he is, he has shown himself to be worthy of that trust. We know him as a loving, as an omnipotent, as an all-powerful, as a creating father, and therefore we're able to put our trust in him. Because God has shown himself in the past to be worthy of our trust, then we can place ourselves in his possession. Faith has confidence. Faith is an assurance. Faith has its object as the person of God who God is. And because of who he is, who he has proven himself to be, just the same way with Laura and, Laura and I, when we got married, she placed her trust in me that I would tr prove worthy of what I had said. And we can place our trust in God because he has proven worthy time after time after time. He has proven his character and therefore is worthy of our trust. What does he promise us? He promises peace in the midst of trials. We receive it by faith. He promises us guidance in daily life. He promises to be with us and guide us in daily life. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. He promises us forgiveness and freedom from guilt, and we receive it by faith. And ultimately, the Father, the Creator of the universe, promises us eternal life, and we receive it by faith. And our faith has an object. It has a foundation. It is an assurance of things hoped for. And it is the conviction, it is the concreteness of things not seen. What about you? What is the basis of your faith? Is faith for you the way it is for a lot of people? It's something that's floating around out there somewhere. It's something that, that is elusive, like a carrot that's being dangled in front of the the, the face of a donkey, you know, and, and just about every time that he seems to, to grasp it, it's taken out of his, his, his grasp. And is it just something that's floating around out there? If that's true, that's not faith. Is it some positive attitude toward life that you work up and you, you know, it's positive thinking? That's not faith. That's presumption on God. That's not faith. Is it something that you grit your teeth and you work up in a time of trial and you just think, oh, I'm going to believe if it kills me. You know, that's not faith. 
That's presumption on God. Faith has an object. Faith has assurance. Faith has as its foundation the person of God. And He's worthy. He'll stand. He'll be here when everything else passes away. When you've worn your teeth down to the gums. Or when that floating thing out there somewhere that we call faith has floated long away. Real faith that bases itself in the person of God will be here. Now some of, some of you have a problem with that. Some of you young people have a problem with that. And that's why you have a problem walking with God on a daily basis. That's why you have a problem with when temptation comes, uh, your first response is to yield. <laughs> why fight it? You know, give in, have a good time. Uh, because your faith, for the most part, is something that's floating around outside that you can't get, grab, you can't grasp. And you haven't yet come to the conviction and come to the place that you realize that faith is assurance, is confidence in the person of God and who He is. And He's there. He's always there. He never ceases. He never wavers. Faith is a conviction in the person of God. Sometimes people place their faith in the church. church is a human instrument. It's made up of people. Ultimately, the church is probably going to fail you if you place your trust in the church. You can place your trust in the pastor. You can place your trust in, in any, anything other than the person of God. And that's not faith. That's presumption upon God. And ultimately, it'll pass away. And the only thing that lasts is the person of God, who He is. And He's proven Himself to be worthy. That's not all. The second, in verse 4. Faith. Now listen to this one. This one is going to be a hard one to grasp for many people. Faith is the only way to righteousness. Read verse 4 with me again. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain's, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith... Though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, the Old Testament account of the, the story of Cain and Abel, you remember who they were. They were the sons of Adam and Eve. And the Old Testament account of that doesn't tell us why God rejected Cain's sacrifice and why he accepted Abel's. It, it, it just says that they were two brothers and they came to God and one of them was a tiller of the ground and the other one was a keeper of the, of the flocks. And they both offered sacrifice to the Father from the first fruits of, of their labors and God looked at Abel's and he said, I accept your sacrifice, Abel. Cain, I reject yours. And the Bible, the Old Testament never really explains that in that Old Testament account, why God did that. But the writer to the Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why. He says, because Abel offered his sacrifice in faith. So the implication is, and this is the important point, the implication is that God, who is able to look into our hearts and see beyond the outside, looked into the heart of Abel and into the heart of Cain and discerned that Abel was coming to him out of the spirit of faith, out of a relationship of faith. And Cain, for whatever reason, he might have come. It was not out of faith. And so God said, I reject that, Cain. Abel, I accept your sacrifice. But it also says, and this is important, that because Abel came to God in faith and offered his sacrifice in faith, that God said he was approved as being righteous. Now, that's a key word, and the rest of the message is going to be built around that word.
Because without an adequate understanding of what righteousness really is, you'll not understand this verse. That's a key word. We get all kinds of connotations. What do you think of when you hear the word righteous? When you think of a righteous individual, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? You think of uh, moral character. You think of ethical purity. Uh, you think of uh, keeping all of the, doing all of the good things that uh, that that one's supposed to do. Coming to church, uh, praying at night, uh, not lying, not stealing. You know, not running around with the wrong crowd. You know, whenever we think of righteousness, we automatically get all of these. Uh, ethical connotations that come into our mind. And that's not totally wrong, but the word has picked that up through the years. And the root meaning of the word righteous, righteousness, is far from that. It's a word of relationship in the scriptures. The word righteous and righteousness is always, in the scriptures, a word of relationship. And not as the Pharisees presumed that they could be righteous by working their self into the presence of God. Righteousness, this is a good way of saying it. Righteousness is not who we are, but what God has declared us to be. Did you hear that? Righteousness is not who I am, because I am not righteous in my own right, but it is who He has declared me to be. Let me turn to a couple of passages of Scripture that will help you understand that more. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down and look them up later, and I'll just read them to you very fast. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 21, righteousness is not who I am, but who he has declared me to be. This is uh, Paul talking about what God did in Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is what that passage of Scripture teaches. Jesus was not a sinner. Will you all agree with me on that? Jesus never sinned. He was a perfect man. The Scriptures teach us over and over that Jesus was without sin. But the Scripture teaches in 2 Corinthians and in very many other places that God made Jesus to become sin. So the perfect, the righteous Son of God, God declared to be a sinner. But He did it for a purpose. And the purpose was in order that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Now, are you righteous? David Hale, Jack Wheat, Jim Carpenter, any of you, are you righteous? No. I don't think anybody here would, would say that. Because in order to be righteous, that would mean you would have to be perfect. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we as human beings are not righteous in our own right. But God declared the, the one righteous man that ever lived declared him to be sin on our behalf so that we could become righteous. Now then, I'm righteous in the eyes of God, but in reality, am I really righteous? No. I still sin every day. And so righteousness in the biblical sense is not who we are, but what God has declared us to be. Now, over in Romans, Paul says it with much more clarity. Romans Chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. He's talking about Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That word believe means is faith. It's just translated differently. Abraham faithed God. Now to the one who works, his wage is reckoned 
not as a favor, but as what is due to him. If he works, he gets paid. It's not a favor. It's what's coming to him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, who makes righteous, the ungodly, you and I, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Righteousness is a word of relationship. It's obvious from those passages of Scripture that you and I cannot be righteous in our own right. Faith is the only means to righteousness. If you are a Christian, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, if you have made that commitment to Him, you stand righteous before a holy God. You've already gone through the judgment, as a matter of fact. You've already been judged. And you were declared not guilty, and the only perfect man that ever lived was declared guilty in your place. And therefore, you've been freed, and God has declared you righteous. And so you see, the Christian life is simply living out what God has already declared to be so. We don't live our Christian life to try to be righteous with God. We already are. But the Christian life is an attempt to live and to live up to that, what God has already declared. It's an attempt to live on earth what God has declared is so in heaven. That excites me. That frees me up. That frees me away from from the need to, to work, as Paul said, because the one that works, when he gets his money, it's not a favor, it's what's coming to him. And that's what he'll get, just what's coming to him. But the one who does not work, but believes that faiths the one who justifies the ungodly, to him, he has become righteous. It's counted as righteousness. On the Sermon on the Mount, or that passage of Scripture that we have named that, because Jesus one day went aside and went to a mountain, and his disciples gathered there around him, and he began to teach them. They came to him, and in the fifth chapter there of Matthew, he began to teach them, but in the 20th verse of the fifth chapter, Jesus makes a very astounding statement. He said to those few disciples that were sitting there with him, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. What an unreasonable request. I'm sure that those disciples sitting there were going, Jesus, you've got to be kidding. You can't be serious. You mean we've got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? Man, that's impossible. Those guys keep the law down to the finest detail. How in the world could we ever be better than that? And the problem is, as oftentimes there is between God and his people, there was a breakdown in communication. Because the disciples probably would understand that word and would hear that word righteousness, as you and I probably have all of our lives. And they would understand it to mean that Jesus would mean that these disciples were going to have to keep the law a little bit better than the Pharisees did, which was impossible because they kept it better than anybody, down to the last jot and tittle. And they would understand probably Jesus to say that, that they must be even more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, keep the law a little bit better than they did, and then they'd get into the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what Jesus meant at all. Jesus meant, unless you're in a faith relationship with the Father, you'll not come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus knew that the, that the Pharisees kept the law. He wasn't ignorant of that. He wasn't making a stupid statement when he said that. He knew that they kept the law, but even more than that, this is important, Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees, and he knew that they were alien to God, that they were rotten inside, and that they did their good works and they did their good deeds out of a wrong motive. 
and they did them from attempting to work themselves into a position of righteousness with God. And that's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So really, faith is the only means to become righteous. And we work and we work and we work to try to do what we think God would like for us to do. We, we, we do the things that we, you know, well, we think, you know, the Lord must be smiling down upon me because of what I did today. I went to church today. In fact, I went twice, <laughs> Sunday morning and Sunday night both. God must be smiling because I've kind of worked myself up a little bit closer to him today. I've been in the house of worship twice. And if that's not out of faith, it's not worth anything. God rejects it like he did Cain's sacrifice because it wasn't out of faith. Or maybe, you know, Lord, today I wrote a bigger check than I usually do. Uh, I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm getting a little closer to God. I'm doing a little bit more what he wants me to do, and God rejects it and says, if it's not out of faith, forget it. Keep your money. It'll burn anyway. In the end, keep it. Spend it on something else. I don't need it. Anything that comes outside of a faith relationship to the Father is useless. In fact, the Scripture says, your righteousness is as filthy rags to the Father. Your righteousness, anything that you can do to be righteous before God is filthy rags. You are righteous. You don't need to become righteous. You already are in the eyes of the Father. And that's what counts. And the Christian life is simply an attempt out of gratitude to the Father. Simply an attempt out of gratitude to Him to give back. To give back. And to give back a little of what He's given. So faith is not only confidence in the person of God. It is that. It is confidence in the person of God. It does have substance. It is an assurance. You can know. You can have faith that's not the gritting your teeth kind or not the kind that floats around out here. But you can have faith that has substance when your faith is in the person of God. But also, faith is the only way to achieve righteousness. Faith is the only way to achieve righteousness. And we need to hear that. It sets us free. It's liberating. We need to hear that. We can get on with serving God when we get quit trying to be righteous in His eyes because you can't do that. You can only serve Him. You can only serve Him. And if you work, He'll pay you what you've got coming and it won't be very much. But if you'll believe, if you'll believe in Him who justifies the ungodly, those who are not worth it, then that's righteousness. And you'll stand in a righteous relationship with the Father and then those things that He promises, that peace that passes all understanding, is yours by faith. That guidance in daily life is yours by faith. And ultimately, eternal life that begins now is yours, and you receive it by faith. And I believe probably that some of you tonight don't really understand an awful lot about what I'm saying. And this is the reason, because you've not taken that initial step the first step of faith that says, Jesus, I trust you. I place my life in your hands. 
I love you and I will follow you all the rest of my life. That initial step of faith that we call salvation, that is coming into that righteous relationship with God. Some of you may not have done that. And you need to do that. You've got to do that. It's a necessity to ever walk with God, to be righteous before Him. But I think probably even more, as I had to search my own heart as I was preparing this message and as I was studying this, and I came to an understanding of what righteousness really was, in my own heart, I had to, I had to come before God and say, Lord, I need, to, I need to recommit my life. I've done an awful lot of things on the basis of trying to work myself into a right relationship with you. And that just negated everything that Jesus had ever done for me on the cross. And I had to come to that place where I said, Lord, um, I know my righteousness is filthy rags before you. And I, and I want to come to you in faith. And I want to live in faith. And I want to live my life out in gratitude for what you've already done for me. Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to lower you to the point to where I think I could work myself into a relationship with you. To do that to God is to make him lower than man. We can't do that. And I had to pray, Father, forgive me for that. For all of the things that I've done to try to be righteous before you. I stand righteous now. And I thank you for that. And I simply want to live my life in gratitude to you for what you've done. Some of you need to do that tonight. You need to do it before God. I think you need to do it before the church. That retribution, that kind of cleansing of the soul that says, I realize where I stand. I realize where I am. And that's not where I want to be. You can do that tonight. It's very simple. It's very simple. It's simply a process of coming to a realization of where you are and then knowing where you need to be and that you want to be there. And then swallowing that old pride, that old self-nature, and being willing to admit before God and before His church that you need to begin again. You need to start over. You need to begin to walk in that faith relationship. Let's pray. And then we'll stand. Let's stand and then we'll pray. And Sue's going to come. And we're going to turn to hymn number 179. And we're going to sing that. But I want us to pray first of all. And I want you to, to open your heart before God. And, and allow Him to, to let you examine where you stand. Father, thank you for these words. Even as they have convicted my own heart once again as I've stood here and, and said them. And Father, I pray that for those that are in this place tonight that really genuinely have never made that initial step of faith that we call salvation, that uh, puts us into that right relationship with you forever, I pray, Father, that you'll give them the strength and the power to make that decision public, to come out with it and lay it before all of us. And Father, for those of us here who need to make that public recommitment, that need to get that straight, we've tried to work ourselves into your righteousness and it's impossible and we realize that. We pray, Father, for those individuals that they would have the courage, Lord, to come openly and publicly to confess it before you and before your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 179. I'll be here at the front. Brother Vaughn will be here. If you'd like to talk with him, uh, do what God leads you to do, whatever that may be.